We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to respond to a person who emailed me about my recent article about Jesus not voting for a Pharisee. She's suggesting that scholars, the authorities, have already decided that Jesus himself was a Pharisee. How do you respond to these things? I'm going to do so within the context of telling you what the appeal to authority fallacy is, the argumentum vericundium. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. Well, as I said in the introduction, I'm going to respond to another person who has communicated with me via email concerning a recent article I wrote for The Washington Times. It's an article that I've already covered on this show. It's the article where I suggest that Jesus would have never voted for a Pharisee. What's the context for that article? Well, it's this constant response that conservatives such as myself always get from those who lean middle or left. You and I have both heard it. They'll say to you or me that our political critique, our political commentary, our views on social issues as well as economic issues suggest that Jesus must have been a conservative and that he wouldn't have voted for anybody but those that are on the right side of the political fence, conservatives. And then they'll smugly declare, you know, Jesus wasn't a Republican after all, right? Well, you know that my article responded to that. And I said, that's just a silly argument. That's a non sequitur. That's a fallacy of non-sequence. That's a rabbit trail. Of course, Jesus wasn't a Republican. Let's just set that one aside. Why wasn't Jesus a Republican? Because the Republican Party didn't exist in Jesus's time. So that type of retort from the left, from the progressives, is silly. It's foolish, and I don't think we should spend a lot of time on it. But the question is, would Jesus have voted for certain parties, certain people in his time, if he would have even had the opportunity to vote? And I suggested that, well, would he have voted for a Roman? Because, after all, the Romans were occupying Jesus' land. They were occupiers of Israel at the time. They were the oppressors. So surely Jesus wouldn't have voted for a Roman, right? How about a former prostitute or a former tax collector, a Jewish trader? Would Jesus have treated these people with contempt? Would he have said, I'm never voting for you? Well, the interesting thing is we don't see the Romans or the tax collectors or the former prostitutes as being the primary targets of Jesus' ire. You know, in fact, Jesus invited a repentant tax collector, Matthew, and a repentant prostitute, Mary, into his inner circle. So we don't see the primary recipients of Jesus' tongue lashings being those people, the Romans, the repentant tax collectors, or the repentant prostitutes, we see it over and over again that those who really get taken to task by Jesus 
are the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees that he called hypocrites. It's the Pharisees that he called whitewashed tombs. It's the Pharisees whom he said were akin to rotting bodies and dead men's bones, a brood of vipers, wolves in sheep's clothing. It's the Pharisees that Jesus goes after. So my rhetorical question in my column was this. Would Jesus have voted for a Pharisee? Well, it doesn't appear that he would have because he declared them to be duplicitous, hypocritical, portraying themselves to be something that they indeed were not. Okay, you know I covered that column. Well, today I want to share with you a response that I received via email from somebody that I think reads my column on a routine basis and probably agrees with a lot of what I say. I'm going to share with you her comment, and then I'm going to also follow up with my response. And I'm going to do so within the context of the fallacy of appealing to authority, the argumentum vericandium. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Let's take a break, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, welcome back to the rebellion. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's start out with an explanation as to what the argument from authority is, the appeal to authority, and why it's fallacious, why you should be aware of it. Now, you know, on this show, I've talked repeatedly about other fallacies. I often go back to the fallacy of non sequitur. I've suggested that that's the fallacy of so what. It's the fallacy of non-sequence. It's the fallacy of a rabbit trail. You know, if somebody brings up a rebuttal that really doesn't have anything to do with your point in the first place, if it's nothing but sleight of hand, if it's a distraction, if there's really no sequence between your argument and their response, if you have this tendency to think to yourself, well, so what? Even if your point is true, it doesn't discount the point I just made. That is sure evidence that it's a non sequitur. It's a fallacy of non-sequence. I've talked about fallacies of ad populum. That's the fallacy where you argue, well, everybody says that you're wrong, 
or everyone says that I'm right. Well, it doesn't make any difference what everyone says. Everyone can be wrong. So appealing to the populace, to the people, appealing to majority vote doesn't really have anything to do with whether or not the argument is true or whether the argument is false. Do you get my point there? Uh, I think I think that one's pretty clear. I've also talked about the fallacy of ad hominem. That's the attack of the person, where you shoot the messenger rather than attend to the message. You say, well, yeah, if, you, if, if you're a never-Trumper, you say, well, Donald Trump is responsible for that view. I'm sick and tired of hearing what Donald Trump says. Well, you could despise Donald Trump, but he could still be telling the truth in a given situation. So you shouldn't discount the point or the argument just because of the messenger. And you could apply that to any given person, uh, even AOC. You know, I don't like AOC. <clears throat> I think a lot of what she says is wrong and, frankly, foolish and stupid. But I need to attack the argument. I shouldn't attack the person. If I ever digress, and I probably have at times because it's so easy to mock some of her views, I need to continue to say, well, her agenda for climate change, her Green New Deal is wrong for these reasons. And then I need to stay on point and attack her ideas and not attack her as a person. Whenever I digress, whenever I make the mistake of mocking the person rather than attacking the ideas, I'm guilty and you're guilty, likewise, of the fallacy of ad hominem. Don't shoot the messenger. Shoot the message if you must, or support the message if you will, but stay on message. Stay on the ideas. Don't don't allow yourself to be tempted into attacking the person rather than the point. Does that make sense to you? So we have those fallacies that are used all the time, and we need to be careful of falling into that trap. In my debate with this guy from Great Britain uh, last week, I challenged him because he kept saying, well, the scholars all say this about evolution, about Darwinism. And I just told him, I said, frankly, that's a fallacy of ad populum, and you know it. It doesn't matter what all the scholars say. All the scholars could be wrong. Prior to Galileo, for example, all of the scholars, quote-unquote, believed in a geocentric view of the universe, that the earth was centrally located, the sun revolved around the earth. And then we all of a sudden heard, well, that really isn't true. That isn't attending to the evidence that we see as we observe the stars and the earth and the sun. We believe, said Galileo, that we have a heliocentric universe or solar system and that the earth revolves around the sun rather than vice versa. So going with all of the scholars would have resulted in the perpetuation of a false idea, something that was anti-science rather than pro-science. So if you apply that particular argument to the fallacies of our day, to the wrong ideas of our time, just because all of the psychologists and psychiatrists, all of the sociologists believe in the transgender ideology, for example, doesn't make it right. They can call a woman a man till the cows come home, but that doesn't make it so. Just because all of the scholars say that the climate is warming doesn't make it so. If you've got multiple years of cooling that are empirical facts, empirically validated, then it doesn't matter what all of the climatologists say and all of the politicians say. 
because they could all be wrong. Okay, you get my point there? It doesn't matter if everyone dumbs down the definition of the human being to nothing but the sum total of your sexual libido and inclinations. Everyone could be wrong. The human being is more than that. So those are fallacies. Fallacies of ad populum, fallacies of ad hominem, and the fallacy of the non sequitur. And I've explained those to you. So today I want to talk about another fallacy. It's the argument from authority or the appeal to authority. It's otherwise known as the argumentum ad vericum diem. Have you heard of that one before? That's the Latin for it. Argumentum ad vericum diem. The appeal to authority. And this is a form of argument where the opinion of an authority on a topic is used as evidence to trump everything else. Your appeal to the authority, to the one scholar, to the one expert, is your ultimate trump card on the debate. Um, if, you, if you go Google this, you'll see that the explanation is very clear. So an example of that would be this. Persons or person A claim that X is true. And then persons or person A claim to be experts in the field concerning X, or they claim to be referring to experts in the field of X. And then therefore, X should be believed and taken as true. So that is a summary of how that particular fallacy is used. In layman's language, it would be akin to saying something like this. Well, Al Gore says that climate change is true. Al Gore is an expert in climate change. Therefore, climate change should be believed as true. Well, it calls into question, number one, is Al Gore an expert? Number two, even if you want to claim that he is, so what? He may be wrong. His expertise does not necessarily validate his claim. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful when we hear these arguments from those people that are perpetuating bad ideas, and we also need to be careful in using the same strategy in defending our own ideas that we think are good and valid and just and right and real. Again, so we need to refer to the facts rather than our feelings about the expertise of a given individual whether it be Al Gore, AOC, Chuck Schumer, whether it be Donald Trump, whether it be Ron DeSantis, or whether it be your pastor, whether it be Carl Sagan, a scientist of renown. It doesn't matter. You don't appeal to authority to make your point. You appeal to the facts. This is just another version of distraction. I would argue that almost all fallacies fall underneath the category of the non sequitur, the so what the non-sequence, the sleight of hand, the distraction, dealing with your agenda, or at least trying to promote your agenda to the exclusion of the actual reality around you. So let's get to my response to my friend's comment on my article. And I want you to be thinking about the appeal to authority, the fallacy of doing so, appealing to authority, to the expertise, to the scholars. You know, scientists say this about your particular argument. And therefore, your argument is either true or it's false based on what the scientist, the experts, the scholar says. All right, so after I wrote my article, I received a kind response, and I'm not mocking this person. In fact, I've changed the name so that the person is protected. Um, so, But I want you to hear verbatim what she said. After my article about Jesus and Pharisees, 
She writes this, Hi Everett, while I enjoyed your article about Jesus and the Pharisees, it is unfortunately not consistent with a historically accurate picture of who the Pharisees were and what they believed in. Jesus, in fact, may well have been a Pharisee or was at least close to the movement. If you're interested, I can suggest some books by modern Christian scholars like Bart Ehrman that might enlighten you. Sincerely, Darla Smith. Okay, I want you to hear again what she said because it's very important. She's being gracious and kind, but do you see where she automatically committed the grave sin of appealing to authority? She says this again, while I enjoyed your article about Jesus and the Pharisees, it is unfortunately not consistent with a historically accurate picture of who the Pharisees were and what they believed in. Jesus, in fact, may well have been a Pharisee or was at least close to the movement. If you're interested, I can suggest some books by modern Christian scholars like Bart Ehrman that might enlighten you. Sincerely, sincerely, Darla Smith. Again, I changed the name there to protect her. Here's my response. I want you to hear it very clearly. I said, Darla, thank you for taking the time to write. I always appreciate readers doing so. That said, I can't help but quickly point out that the scholars that you're referencing, such as Bart Ehrman, are anything but Christian. So I'm making the point here. Number one, you're telling me that Bart Ehrman is a Christian, and you think he will enlighten me as a Christian scholar. You believe, Darla, that this man, as a scholar, as an expert, as an authority on this matter, trumps what I said and what the Bible says. That's essentially what she's saying in her comment. So I'm pointing out, number one, I want to remind you, Darla, that scholars, in quotation marks I put there, such as Bart Ehrman, are anything but Christian. By putting quotation marks around scholars and Christian, I'm trying to point out that, number one, your assumption that Bart Ehrman is the expert here, is the scholar here, is not necessarily the end of the story. That assumption needs to be challenged, number one, because you're appealing to his authority. And his authority may have nothing to do with this argument, he could still be wrong. I'm not too sure he's the scholar you think he is, is what I'm trying to point out there by putting quotation marks around that word. And then likewise, you're claiming that he's a Christian. Well, does he even claim that for himself? And if not, why are you claiming that? So I go on and I say this, Dr. Ehrman does not believe in the inerrancy or the authority of the Bible, and he has made a career out of refuting it, if not outright condemning orthodoxy. By definition, Bart Ehrman does not subscribe to the historical creeds, nor does he claim to be Bible-believing. These self-avowed facts disqualify him from any claims to what the church, the apostles, the scriptures, or even Jesus defined as Christianity. Bottom line, Bart Ehrman makes no pretense to being born again, and thus by virtue of the very words of Christ, he is outside the kingdom of God. And then I cite John 3, 3, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 3. Now, did you hear what I said? I said, number one, let's take Bart Ehrman at his own words, okay? Bart Ehrman does not believe in the inerrancy or the authority of the Bible. That's clear. He's written books refuting inerrancy, refuting the authority of the Bible. He, he, he's made a career. He's gotten rich off of denying those two things rather than promoting those two things. Inerrancy and the authority of the Bible. All right? Now, if you're talking about somebody who refutes the 
accuracy of the Bible, uh, do you think maybe he has a bias or an agenda here? Also, not only has he refuted and denied and challenged and written about and made millions off of refuting inerrancy and attacking the authority of scriptures, he outright condemns orthodoxy. In fact, he suggests that orthodoxy as we know it today was nothing but the group of the powerful, the folks that won at the Council of Nicaea, and that they overruled or trumped earlier versions of Christianity just because of political power in Constantine. That's Bart Ehrman's position. Okay, so by definition, I would argue that Ehrman, Bart Ehrman, does not subscribe to the historical creeds. He doesn't, nor does he claim to be Bible-believing. He refutes the Bible. He doesn't say that it's accurate. He says that it's not. And because he says these things himself, these are self-avowed facts, I'm arguing that that disqualifies him from any claims to be what the church, the apostles, the scriptures, and even Jesus define as Christianity, quote-unquote. And I put that in parentheses, or quotation marks, too. Why? Somebody's going to say, well, Christianity is a later label that was put on the followers of Christ and biblical folks. Okay, fine. But we know that to be Christianity, and I'm putting it in, in, in quotes accordingly. The bottom line is this. Barterman makes no, no pretense to being born again, and thus, by the very words of Christ, who said that you must be born again to be part of the kingdom of God, Barterman therefore must be outside the kingdom of God by virtue of what Jesus himself said. You following me on this? So then I go on and I make it clear. I say Mr. Ehrman's scholarship has also been widely discredited. So just because he claims to be an expert and has made millions, okay, and just because a lot of people have rallied around him, what's that a fallacy of? A lot of people, that's the fallacy of ad populum. So you're implying the fallacy of ad populum by suggesting that Bart Ehrman, by virtue of his authority, the appeal to authority, you're implying that those two fallacies make Bart Ehrman's claims true. Not a good place to go. So back to my paragraph here. Mr. Ehrman's scholarship has also been widely discredited. How so? Well, see his debate with Daniel Wallace, who's one of the foremost scholars. Okay, now I'm not committing the fallacy of appeal to authority there. I'm just saying if you want to have dueling swords, if you want to use your sword of Bart Ehrman as a scholar, then you might want to consider the other sword on the other side of this debate or this duel, and that's Daniel Wallace, who has debated Bart Ehrman, and frankly, won when you judge the debate by virtue of the facts. So Daniel Wallace has debated Ehrman in a series called Can We Trust the Text of the New Testament? Go, go Google it. It's fascinating. You can either get a CD of it, you can watch it online. Watch Daniel Wallace debate Bart Ehrman on this issue of can we trust the text of the New Testament? Dan- Daniel Wallace, Dr. Wallace here, exposes Bart Ehrman's poor research point by point. So look at the facts. Don't take Wallace's word for it. Don't take Ehrman's word for it. Look at the claims that both are making and then weigh those claims by virtue of the facts that they present. And I think you would be hard-pressed to say Ehrman wins that debate. Wallace tears his argument down, point by point. There's another scholar out there, if you want to have dueling scholars, and this one's name is Timothy Paul Jones. He wrote a book, and it's titled, Misquoting Truth. 
A Guide to the Fallacies of Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus. That's the name of one of Bart Ehrman's best-selling books that made him millions by tearing down the words of Jesus, as recorded in the New Testament. Timothy Paul Jones tears that argument down, point by point. Here's an example. One of the things that Ehrman says over and over again is the scriptures, the best ones that we have, the documents that are the oldest, are loaded with errors, inconsistencies. Well, there's a technical truth there that (laughs) exposes a massive lie. The technical truth is, if you go back to the oldest documents we have, you do have inconsistencies. Do you know what well over, I think the number's around 98, 99% of those inconsistencies are? Little errors like not crossing a T or dotting an I or forgetting a period or whatnot. Punctuation, maybe a spelling error. Does that cause you to doubt the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture? Well, it shouldn't. I mean, my land. Does forgetting, does a scribe forgetting to cross a T or dot an I cause you any question with regard to the narrative, the words, the inerrancy, the message, the authority, the infallibility of the Bible? Well, that would be crazy talk to suggest that all of those errors essentially discount the New Testament itself. How ridiculous. Timothy Paul Jones points that particular thing out, as well as dozens, if not hundreds, of, of examples of poor research and poor conclusions drawn by Bart Ehrman. So I say to my friend Deborah, no, Bart Ehrman's contentions aside, there is no evidence that Jesus was a Sadducee or a Pharisee. In fact, he warned us explicitly to beware of them and their leaven, that's Jesus' language, of hypocrisy. That's in Matthew 16, 6. Go look it up. Read what he says about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then while you're at it, go read Matthew 27. Read the whole chapter where Jesus, (laughs) lest there be any doubt left, he calls the Pharisees snakes, wolves, and whitewashed tombs. So you're going to tell me that you think Jesus was a Pharisee because Bart Ehrman says so? Well, number one, Bart Ehrman has a bias. He's not born again. He's not Bible-believing. He doesn't believe in orthodoxy. He's made millions tearing all of those time-tested truths down. And he's done so by reviving age-old arguments out of Gnosticism and the Gnostic Gospels, uh, books such as the Gospel of Thomas, which we know were written hundreds of years after the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John. So why would we all of a sudden dig up an old argument that was discredited centuries ago about the Gospel of Thomas and whatnot and claim that somehow those those documents that came along hundreds of years after orthodoxy was established in the New Testament and claim that somehow this Gnostic Gospel is a trump card over the thing that was always already proven in time-tested truth. All right. So, beware of fallacies. Beware of the fallacy of ad hominem, attacking the person. I hope I haven't attacked Bart Ehrman as a person in this show. Or my friend Deborah. I've tried not to attack their person. I've tried not to call them stupid or idiots. Well, that's foolish. You're just not very smart. I haven't said that. What I have said is your idea is not well-founded. Your idea 
is wrong. And here's why. Your idea should be discarded, and you should embrace the truth. Bart Ehrman's ideas have been discredited by people who are just as scholarly as he is. So if Deborah or anybody else wants to debate me on this issue of Jesus and the Pharisees and whatnot, don't just throw out Bart Ehrman as if he represents all scholarship. No, that's an appeal to his authority, and frankly, his authority is questionable based on the facts, not just his person. Okay, don't commit the fallacy of ad hominem. Don't attack the people. You don't need to. Attack the ideas. Don't go down rabbit trails, non sequiturs and whatnot. Avoid those. That's the so what argument, and frankly, we shouldn't commit that, and we should challenge others when they do. Don't commit the fallacy of ad populum. Just because everybody agrees with Bart Ehrman, which they don't, by the way, but if everybody did, that doesn't make Bart Ehrman right. We need to go back to the idea itself and evaluate it and not just follow after all the lemmings that are rushing over the cliff. And finally, this appeal to authority is pervasive in our culture right now. Well, so-and-so is a scientist and says that climate change is real. Well, that doesn't make any difference. Look at the data. And so-and-so says that Jesus was a, a Sadducee or a Pharisee? Well, that doesn't make it so. Look at what the Bible itself says and what Jesus himself said to those people. That might get you to the right answer rather than the wrong one. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.